Hello and welcome to a new four-part podcast by Judith Ankatel and Miriam Gould, made in commemoration for the Remembrance Day of Lost Species. This is Episode 3, The Fish. Welcome to The Fateful Tale of Chesapeake Bay. Okay, right, we're, we're recording. Um, we're recording. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what you're going to do, uh, Miriam, because you've got the uh, menhaden and, and you... Yeah, I didn't know anything about these fish and uh, it's been really great getting to know them and learning about sea creatures <laughs> well, okay. and their life cycles. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. a whole new world for me. And the thing about the, the work that I've done for the exhibitions is it always comes down to the detail. Mm. When, you, when you actually do just slow everything down and look at the detail, it's revelatory. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, that's what doing this podcast is allowing us to do. It's, you know, I've got quite a general sense about a lot of these things. And this is really, well, yeah, that's what research does. It yep. Uh, yep. opens up the whole view of it so yeah, yeah it's, um, or the beginning of it at least what, what I'm thinking Miriam is that also speaking to the listener this is a very densely packed yeah podcast today yeah uh, because I'm doing the Manhattan and there's other things involved in that and you're doing the striped bass yes. and that's got loads of stuff involved with that as well it's basically almost two episodes in one in in some ways yeah yeah and it's um, it's also the prey and the predator. You're doing the prey, I'm doing the predator. Yeah. And also this episode is going to include how these podcasts came about. And yeah. it, in fact, it almost comes down to one line in Callum Roberts' Unnatural History of the Sea. Mm. And that was four years ago. And this has been four years in the making. I was struck by the line. And yeah. it's something that has not left me and I will talk a little bit more about that later on and it's yeah. kind of clarified I always knew that in the back of my mind that this was something that was that had had really got to me and it, this is where it has unveiled itself yeah and what do you think about having an intermission I think that's a great idea I think from a theatre perspective yeah it's like we've got two acts in this episode and I think giving us and the listener a moment where the curtain comes down and there's some there's some space to breathe in between. Yes. Uh, I think that's a really good idea. We will invent this. And it yes. might be that instead of having an ice cream, we might have just a soundscape yeah. and, and people can go and, you know, get a cup of tea or... Or sit and meditate, meditate or just sit listen and to ruminate. The... Yep. Great. Good idea. Yeah. And yeah, so listeners that will occur yes and uh make the most of it <laughs> ah, <yeah. laughs> i know what about if it comes after the menhaden lament that would be a nice yeah. 
put it. Yeah. The reason we're having an intermission is because we didn't want to split it into two episodes because both parts are integral to each other and belong in one whole. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess I'll get started. There's a lot to talk about. And we will meet for the review later on. Yeah, see you at the end, (laughs) the other side. (laughs) I'll see you for a drink at the bar. Yes, I'll be there. (laughs) Okay. Okay, see you later. Bye, Miriam. Bye. to surmise the Manhattan's place in nature, swarming our waters in countless myriads, swimming in closely packed unwieldy masses, helpless as flocks of sheep, near to the surface and at the mercy of every enemy, destitute of means of defense or offense, their mission is unmistakably to be eaten. In estimating the importance of the Manhattan to the United States, it should be borne in mind that its absence from our waters would probably reduce all our other sea fisheries to at least one-fourth their present extent. The Menhaden, a fish I had never heard of, but apparently, according to experts, is one of, if not the, most important fish in the sea. So, I'm going to delve into the world of this unsung fish and shine a light on its importance. It's going to be quite a meaty tale. No terrible pun intended. Okay. So just to start off, to sort of highlight how unknown or unrecognised they are, one of the videos that I was watching on YouTube specifically about the Menhaden it had subtitles under it, and uh, obviously the transcription program didn't know the word Menhaden, so it kept turning it into other words, and I just thought that was quite symbolic. It recognised it as Manhattan, as Menmade, or Menhaven. I just wanted to pop that in there because it struck me as quite poignant. So, the Menhaden is a small oily fish. It is just over a foot in length. It has a deeply forked tail, bright silver, and it has one main humeral or humeral spot. This spot is located just behind their gills, and then they have some smaller spots behind this main spot. The Menhaden that we find in Chesapeake Bay, or the Atlantic Menhaden, Brevortia tyrannus, and they travel in large shoals. The Native Americans used them as fertilizer. Part of their name derives from an Algonquin word. This is, I um, apologize for this uh, pronunciation, Manaquotio, which means he fertilizes. When the pilgrims were struggling in the supposedly new world, there was a envoy, Native American envoy from the Patuxet tribe, Basically, his whole tribe had been uh, eradicated by disease that the colonists had brought over. 
Uh, he had survived because he had actually been in England at the time because he had been kidnapped earlier on by different people who travelled to America. Anyway, so he ends up back in America where the pilgrims are struggling. He knows English, so he becomes an envoy to the pilgrims. And he is said, his name, by the way, or the name that he was given was Squanto or Tisquantum and he's known as the last of the Patuxets. So this man is said to have introduced the method of planting Menhaden fish in the soil with their crops as a fertiliser. Menhaden are often referred to as inedible fish, but a bit of digging around revealed that that's basically because they're super oily. But they have been uh, sold as in the same way as sardines, and they at some point were sold to the poor as food. Um, so they have been eaten, but mainly their uses are different, and we'll, com we'll come to that. A bit about their life cycle. So they spawn all year round, but they predominantly do their spawning in autumn near North Carolina, which isn't too far away from the Chesapeake Bay. Their eggs hatch in the open water, and then the larva drift on the currents into sheltered estuaries, where they develop for approximately a year. Now, Chesapeake Bay is a popular nursery for small fish. Um, Judith talked about this when she was talking about the seagrasses. Anyway, so once they've developed for approximately a year in these in these sheltered estuaries and the seagrasses hiding and the reefs, the oyster reefs, they then return to the open ocean. And at this point, their diet changes because when they're in the estuaries, they eat phytoplankton or the vegetable debris. And then when they go to the open ocean, they eat zooplankton, which is little animal organisms rather than plant organisms. And they reproduce until they die. And they can live up to 12 years, which is quite long, I think. So they are known as a prey species or a forage species. And this means that they are at the base of the food chain, at the bottom... Uh, and they're basically eaten by everything. Among its enemies may be counted every predaceous animal which swims in the same waters. Whales and dolphins follow the schools and consume them by the hogshead. Sharks of all kinds prey upon them largely. One hundred have been taken from the stomach of one shark. All the large carnivorous fishes feed on them. The tunny is the most destructive. I have often, writes a gentleman from Maine, watched their antics from the masthead of my vessel, rushing and thrashing like demons among a school of fish, darting with almost lightning swiftness, scattering them in every direction, and throwing hundreds of them in the air with their tails. The pollock, the whiting, the striped bass, the cod, the squeteague, and the garfish are savage foes. The swordfish and the bayonetfish destroy many, rushing through the schools and striking right and left with their powerful swords. The bluefish and bonito are, however, the most destructive enemies, not even excepting man. They are what is known as a keystone species. There is a quote here from uh, Mr. H. Bruce Franklin that says... I saw what the Menhaden industry was doing to the environment. By destroying Menhaden, they were essentially pulling out the keystone of the whole arch of the marine ecology of the Atlantic coast. Now this quote tells us 
that these fish are being overfished. They are a keystone species in the marine ecology of not only the bay, but the whole eastern Atlantic coast, but also vital to the economy and culture of the Chesapeake Bay. So let's go back to the beginning of our main timeline of what we are looking at, which starts around the Civil War. So after the Civil War, there was a lot of oil needed. As industrialization was increasing, oil was needed for all manner of things. And Menhaden oil was discovered to be an excellent substitution for whale oil and much easier to catch. This led to the beginning of the reduction industry. Reduction is, this is gross, <laughs> reduction is the boiling and grinding of the Menhaden fish. And in this process, they are then separated into their oil, fish meal and solubles. The reduction industry was a very big industry at the time, and it grew from the 1860s to about 1956. There were factory reduction factories up and down the eastern coast, popping up all along rivers. As time went on and the fish stock slowly decreased, the number of factories reduced. Uh, and then in 1956, there were only 20 factories left along the Atlantic coast. And then by 1997, any remaining companies all merged into one. And this company is Omega Protein and it's situated in Reedville, which is at the ch on the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. And it is the only reduction company left on the East Coast. And Reedville, this tiny town, is the second largest port in the USA by tonnage. From the 50s onwards, to get a bit of a sense of the scale and importance of this reduction fishery for the area, basically the way these fish are fished is you have a spotter pilot in the air who can see the shoals from above and then they radio to the ships to tell them where they are. Now, this was a perfect situation for uh, competition where competing uh, pilots would race each other, but they'd also scramble each other's radios so no communication was possible between spotter pilot and ship. So now we're left with this one massive company in Reedville, the only reduction factory on the coast. And what does it do? What are the Menhaden used for? It's a massive range of things. Just grabbing my notes. So any omega-3 fish oil is most likely going to be Menhaden fish. So if you take those, that's what that is. It's used in fertilizer, it's used in cosmetics, it's used for food for swine and dairy farms. We are in one way or another eating Menhaden fish without knowing it, probably on a daily basis. If we're not eating it, we're putting it on our face. There is definitely a case being made for the fact that everything we use Menhaden fish for can be done in other ways. I mean, the big one is omega-3 exists in plants. It does not only exist in fish. Now, there is, of course, not only this big company fishing for Menhaden there is an entire industry of small, independent watermen uh, whose livelihoods depend on the Menhaden fishery. These independent watermen going out to catch Menhaden 
is not for reduction, but for mainly bait. So because menhaden are at the bottom of the food chain, almost everything will be attracted to it, to eat it. So it's perfect to be used as bait. One of the main industries in Chesapeake Bay is the blue crab fishery. And blue crabs love eating uh, freshly dead menhaden. 95% of uh, the independent waterman's catches is used for this crabbing. So this is where I find it interesting is the crossover of this marine ecosystem and the human economy, they merge into one. And the menhaden is sort of the keystone of both of these things. There's a waterman in one of the videos I watched. He said, no food, no fish, no fish, no living. To give you a sense of the different scales of amounts of fish that are caught by the independent waterman versus the big reduction factory, the factory boats can catch in one week what these independent watermen on their snapper rigs and other boats, smaller boats, catch in a whole year. So when we talk about sustainable fishing, obviously, if it was just these watermen, there wouldn't be a problem. Now, there's various ways that these fish get caught, and I'm not going to go into lots of them. There's this, but there's a few that are interesting, and they're part of a very rich culture and history in the area. I mean, the Native Americans used to catch the menhaden through something called pound net fishing, which was basically a series of poles that were stuck into the riverbeds and the nets were strung between them. And it was sort of like a, well, it's a series of nets and it looked like a maze and it basically guided the menhaden into an area where they then would get caught. Some people still do that there. One of the main ways of catching uh, menhaden was through purse seines. I think that's how I said purse seines. I mean, when I talk about this, I'm all the more aware that I'm just sat in a flat in Froome in Somerset talking about a lifestyle that I know nothing about. <laughs> so apologies to all people who fish in Chesapeake Bay. Uh, I'm doing my best. Okay, so these purse sayings, uh, basically this method, you had two fishing boats that would surround a school of Menhaden. They'd have large nets that would then enclose the school and they'd hold these nets and then they would hoist them up and catch them. And this method is one of the lowest levels of bycatch in the world. So this is a very good way of fishing for Menhaden because you don't end up pulling out loads of other fish that die needlessly. So these workers were largely African-American and while they hoisted these nets up, it was of vital importance that they hoisted them up at the same time. The way that they coordinated this was by singing uh, shanties. And this is shanties spelt C-H-A-N-T-A-Y-S. So obviously related to sea shanties that we know. So the importance of these songs was basically the nets weighed thousands of pounds and they had to be pulled up together or they, the workers, and the catch could be lost. So the music and the singing was the hydraulics of this work uh, and this is how it was done 
before the 60s. And then from the 60s, the hydraulic power block was introduced. The mechanisation changed the face of this work. But this is what they were singing on the boats, and I would love for you to hear some of it right now. It's great. Norm, the crew of the large, strong black men with big, strong backs that want to pull on their steps. Yeah. So we're going to demonstrate to you now We've done our jobs. The first boats have encircled the fish, and now we're about to pull the fish in. All right, boys, y'all ready? Yes, <clears throat> Won't you help me to raise them, boys? Hey, hey, honey. Oh, come on, let's go get them. Come on, get them. Come on, get them. Come on, get them. One very important part of the Menhaden's job in the sea, uh, in, especially in the estuary, is that they are filter feeders. The way they do this is they travel in large, tightly packed, slow-moving schools with their mouths open. Water is then pushed through their gills, or gill rakers, and these form a sort of basket that catches any plankton. And as Judith said in the previous episode, the phytoplankton needs to be kept in check. Each individual menhaden can filter up to 15 litres of seawater a minute, like a giant vacuum cleaner. Menhaden are not the only species that clean the waters of the bay in this way. One of the most important, if not the most important, filter feeder in the Chesapeake Bay are the oysters. The oyster, or as the one in Chesapeake Bay is called, the eastern oyster, is another keystone species of the ecosystem that we are looking at. And it has been called an ecosystem engineer. In their large numbers, in the form of reefs, they form habitat and refuge for juvenile fish and crabs. And, importantly, they are filter feeders of phytoplankton and the excess nutrients that cause these phytoplankton to bloom. One oyster can filter more than 230 litres of water a day, uh, which they do by pumping water through their gills, and these gills then trap the food, nutrients, suspended sediments and chemical contaminants. Oyster reefs are formed through oyster larvae settling on other oysters, and once attached, they are called spats. These spats are mostly male, but later on in their development, they may become female. And then later on, they may even change back again. They are hermaphrodites. And if you know the painting of Venus coming out of the oyster shell, Venus is Aphrodite. It's all connected uh, and it's lovely. So these larvae or spats then obviously as I said they develop into adult oysters other larvae attach to them attach to them attach to them and this jumble full of nooks and crannies is created 
we spoke about very briefly in episode one, these oyster reefs back in the 1700s were so numerous and so large that ships would run aground on them and they'd have to navigate around them. This surface, this oyster reef surface is, you know, if you measure the surface of it, it's 50 times that of a flat bed. Now, oysters have had it quite difficult lately. Obviously, the oysters have been greatly depleted since the 1800s, which we spoke about in episode one. Furthermore, they've been suffering from some very serious diseases since the 50s. One is called Dermo and the other is called MSX. And these are part of the challenges that the restoration efforts are facing Again, dead zones and phytoplankton blooms hinder the development of oyster larvae and the sediment can suffocate them. And here is a quote from the Chesapeake Bay programme, which went straight to my heart and it's stress related to poor water quality can make oysters more susceptible to disease. So these menhaden, they are used, as I said, for the bait fishery. They are at the bottom of the food chain. Lots of things love to eat it. As I said, the menhaden are used for two main fisheries, bait and reduction. So the bait fishery came into prominence and grew in economic importance from the 1980s onwards. The reduction industry has been around, as I said, since basically just after the Civil War. Menhaden is the rockfish or the striped bass's favourite food, so it's used for that. 95% of this bait fishery goes towards bait for crabbing, for the blue crab. So the blue crab, or the Chesapeake blue crab, is officially the Atlantic blue crab, or Calinectus sapidus. The blue crab grows up to nine inches in diameter, it lives up to three years. It is a bluish olive green with bright blue claws and the females have red tips on those claws. And the redder those tips, the sexier those blue crabs are to male blue crabs, in case you wanted to know that. Throughout its life, this crab makes use of all the varying habitats in the bay. In warm weather, it flourishes in the shallows and the underwater grass beds that we've talked about before. And then in winter, so right now, it hibernates. It is hibernating in the bay's deepest trenches. There's less of these than there used to be, but there are still some. The males prefer the fresh waters of the bay and its rivers, while the females prefer the saltier waters. This highlights the importance of diversity of habitat. We know it eats menhaden bait, but it also feeds on oysters, clams, mussels, smaller crustaceans, plant and animal detritus, and other freshly dead fish, even smaller and soft-shelled blue crabs. So it has some cannibalistic tendencies. Let's hone in on its reproductive behaviour because this will highlight the various habitats as well as just showing how mad and amazing nature is. In the middle of the bay, in its brackish waters, the male crab is attracted to a female crab. She attracts the male when she is approaching her final molt. And I had to look up this because I wasn't sure if it was what I thought it was. But yes, it is. Every time a crab molts, 
it loses its outer shell and grows a new one, much like snakes. So this molting is a part of their maturing process. So a young female approaching her final molt releases a pheromone in her urine, which attracts a male crab in these brackish waters in the middle of the bay. The male crab comes over and he then cradles this soft-shelled young female in his legs and carries her around for days as he searches for a safe and protected place for her final molt. After this, once she's molted, they mate and the male then continues to cradle her until her newly exposed shell hardens. This will be her final shell. Once this has been achieved, he then goes off in search for other mates. One assumes a younger soft-shelled specimen. And the female then migrates to the salt waters near the mouth of the bay. So she's heading away from the land. When the female and the male mated, she took his sperm and has been storing it ever since. And so while she is in these saltier waters, the eggs begin to mature. She will carry up to eight million eggs and they are tucked in her aprons uh, and her aprons are her abdominal flaps. So these eggs are there for two to nine months and at the right time she inseminates them with the sperm that she's been carrying around. And then a few weeks after this, the larvae, they are released into the salt waters and the current then takes them into the ocean where they continue to develop. And then once they are big enough, these larvae, or zoa, Z-O-E-A, I'm not sure how to say it. So once they are big enough, they then return to the bay and they pass through a stage called megalops. And in this stage, they are crawling on the bottom of the bed of the estuary all the way to the upper bay and its rivers. So they're passing through the grasslands and the oyster reefs, and they need these obviously for protection on their way to the upper bay and its rivers. Once they get there, they metamorphose into immature crabs. All in all, it takes them about 18 months to reach maturity. That is half of their lifespan. And if you think about those up to eight million eggs that the female was carrying, approximately only one of those will reach maturity. The blue crabs are one of the biggest fisheries in the bay. A third of the USA blue crab catch comes from Chesapeake Bay, so that's huge. It is also a keystone species, both as a prey and a predator. Its ecological importance is due to the fact that it cleans the bottom of the bay. Their survival is synonymous with that of the bay's ecosystem, of which they are a part. And in a beautiful irony of nature, you know, we know that they feed on dead menhaden meal as part of the bait industry. But in their larval form, they are in turn eaten by menhaden. As I come to the end of this, perhaps long-winded tale of the menhaden, I want to introduce a concept to you, one that is called the tragedy of the commons. And basically, this means where individual users independently from each other and according to their own self-interest, deplete or spoil a shared resource. 
So basically, it's this notion that individuals, without any malice as well, bear this in mind, everyone's working according to their own needs or their own self-interest, but taken together, accumulated as one, we ruin a resource that we all need and that we share. And in this case, in this story, that is what this overfishing is. The Menhaden are being overfished. It's not a straightforward thing. Who decides that they're being overfished? Who is overfishing them? It's a very complex situation and livelihoods depend on it. And the marine ecology and survival of an ecosystem depend on it. So it's big stuff and it's not simple. Surveys have shown that the numbers of young men Hayden in the Chesapeake Bay have dropped since the 90s pretty steadily. And the men Hayden population has been overfished for 32 out of the past 54 years. There's a lot of terminology, different ways of measuring, but basically it's very timely that we're doing this. Something really positive happening at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is that they used to measure the numbers of Menhaden through something called single species stock assessment, which basically just looked at the Menhaden. It sort of measured their stock uh, by how many mature eggs there were, etc., etc., etc. This led very often to a sort of statement that there wasn't anything critical happening. But now, as of 2020, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has adopted a new ecosystem modelling. This ecosystem modelling is called the Northwest Atlantic Coastal Shelf Model of Intermediate Complexity for Ecosystems. And basically what this does is it accounts for the Menhaden as part of an ecosystem. It seems pretty commonsensical, but that's only just happened. So it is now being counted in a way that the fact that it is a forage fish is taken into account. So this model of which the Menhaden is a part, and it's not, you know, it's not just to work out if the Menhaden are being overfished. This model is looking at these various species, and the various species are as follows. Uh, the model has four key predator species, uh, which are the striped bass, the bluefish, the weakfish, and the spiny dogfish, and it has three key prey species, the Atlantic Menhaden, the Atlantic heron, and the bay anchovy. So... This is just a wonderful thing that's happened this year, but also at the same time, it's sort of amazing that it took this long, that only just now those numbers are taking the ecosystem into account. Better late than never? I don't know. This ecosystem modelling is being done by the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. So they're doing some really good work. And I want to leave you with a quote that says, the ocean depends on abundant Menhaden, and Menhaden's abundance depends on us. My sources were a documentary called Menhaden, the Most Important Fish in the Bay by Earth Focus from 2012. Another documentary called Foraging the High Seas and then Hayden Story 
by Red Vault Productions and The Nature Conservancy from 2017. Following websites and organizations, Virginia Folklife Program, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, Chesapeake Bay Program, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation had a video called Menhaden, the Chesapeake's Unsung Hero, and another website called Animal Diversity Web. Special mention to the Northern Neck Shanty Singers, whose voices you heard and who I tried to find but couldn't find. So if anyone knows how to get in touch with them so that we can share our appreciation of their work and their singing, please get in touch. So I've gone through my research and I've done my best to string it all together, but I am left wanting to, I don't know, say something about the Menhaden and I guess the sea creatures in general that I can't express through the facts, or at least not overtly. Because when we describe this podcast, we've been saying that it is a story of science told by artists. So I made this song, I guess you could call it. Well, I've called it a lament, uh, or specifically the Menhaden Lament, because I wanted to sing for these unsung fish. So here is my Menhaden Lament. Oh, flitter 
watch as we move as one, move as one mind, move as one body, one mind, one body, one mind, one body, one mind, one body, one mind, one body, one hunting, one caressing, one mind, one body, one mind, one body. Hi Miriam, I'm, uh, I'm down on the beach again and I don't know if I'll be able to make this recording, it's quite windy, but just to digress a little bit, it's, it's a winter sun and the sun is so positioned in the sky it's quite low because it's a winter sun and as the waves are breaking 
towards me. The sun is actually catching them from behind. So as they're breaking in my direction, it's as if they're backlit, which doesn't happen that often. Really gorgeous. Anyway, digression over. Uh, really enjoyed your piece about the Menhaden, and it, uh, well, we, we've structured it like this, but we're looking at the prey and the predator, and so I'm going to go on and discuss the, the striped bass. But the thing that always gets me about the Menhaden is this, the visualization of them as a, as a shoal. They swim, you know, they swim together. They're a bit like starlings in the water, really, aren't they? They do their murmurations. Uh, but this kind of that description with the, the the blocks of silver as they as they move around uh, as a collective, and then they they often um, identify themselves on the surface of the water with the with them breaking the water. So anybody, and it's not to their benefit because anybody on the shore or on a a a trawler is actually going to see their exact location. And in fact, sometimes when they're they, they're churning up the water as they come to the surface. It's a uh, big bruiser striped bass after them. So I've come in from the windy beach and I'd like to tell you about the, the striped bass, which is uh, an iconic or is the iconic fish of the Chesapeake Bay, but it's also a fish that is held in high esteem down the eastern states of America. Uh, so much so that it is the state fish of Maryland, South Carolina, Rhode Island, and it's the state saltwater fish of New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire, which makes it an anadromous fish. It's a very hard word to say, but it's, a, it's an incredible piece of fish constitution that the adult striped bass lives in the saltwater oceans, but returns to the freshwater tributaries to spawn. So it is able to live in both saltwater and freshwater. And the, the juveniles from the years spawning usually go into the saltwater ocean for the first time in their first winter. Uh, the striped bass have gathered an assortment of names that largely reflect the geography of the name givers. So they're known variously as striper, linesider, the rock or rockfish... Rockfish mostly in the Chesapeake Bay area because they're found around the oyster reefs or were found around the oyster reefs. If you were to be introduced to them formally, they would be known as Roccus lineatus, which is their, their Latin name. And to say something about their uh, size, um, I'm actually going to go with the information from the US Fish and Wildlife Service because there are varying descriptions from many different sources. So they're saying that the length of the striped bass will range from 16 to 30 inches, which would be 40 to 76 centimetres. But what always comes up with the striped bass is what they used to be. And it might give the date and it glories in the fact that it would be five to six feet long with a weight of 50 to 60 pounds, which is around 25 kilograms or just under four stone. But they are reducing in size, and on one of the uh, sources it was saying that a young striped bass is a slender version of the bass from times past. The average size now is probably 5 to 10 pounds. They're long-living. They can live up to 30 years. And in fact, this, is, this was a surprise to me because fish actually can have long lives if they're not 
caught or diseased um, and they're given a chance just to, to live out their life, they often will go 20, 30 years, if not longer. The female striped bass tends to grow uh, larger than the male striped bass and they're known as multi-spawners so that they will spawn over a period of years, unlike some fish which just spawn the once. They have a very unusual characteristic which doesn't come up on all the sources, but I'm going to go again with this US Fish and Wildlife Service, which is that they have no eyelids, so that the in the bright summer light they will dive as deep as they can to avoid the light because it literally hurts their eyes. To give a little bit of a a physical description, uh, the striped bass is silvery grey, shading to olive green on the back and white on the belly, and running from the gills to the tail are what appears to be horizontal stripes running along its side, decreasing in tone and size as they slip and disappear into the soft white underbelly. And these are not continuous lines, but it's as if they have been marked out in a line of dots and dashes on an old typewriter. And to describe their mouth, they have a slight overbite, so that the bottom jaw protrudes beyond the top of the mouth, and it has quite fleshy lips, uh, which help when they are doing a bit of sea-bottom hoovering. They are opportunistic predators and will feed on plankton, insects, crustaceans, small fish throughout their various stages of development, but it tends to be that the juveniles feed on the crustaceans, worms and insects, but the adult stripers feed primarily on the menhaden. But it can include small fish, alewives, herring, smelt, eels, flounders, mummychogs and silversides. They are intelligent predators with voracious appetites. And I have a lovely descriptive quote in a book called uh, Popular Treaties Upon the Game and Food Fishes of North America. 1987, by G.B. Goody. Uh, And we've used a lot of quotes from him. He's a a renowned fish scientist from that time. And he he wrote really beautifully. I mean, he wrote as a scientist, but he wrote really beautifully about fish. In it, somebody called C.C. Abbott reports once seeing a bass, a foot in length, devour a dozen silver-finned minnows in four minutes. A striped bass, writes he, will frequently corner up a small school of minnows and then pick them up as rapidly and as easily as a fowl will pick up grains of corn and while devouring them will keep them in a small place close together all the time. So the striped bass has got his... uh, He's eating his starter and he's got cornered his main course, his dessert, and, and, and a cheese board as well. I would call him a um, a strategic eater. And there are many other stories over the centuries on the bass choking themselves to death with their prey. One naturalist, uh, a C.D. Badham, he wrote, The bass's foible is an inordinate greediness which, when choice fish can be obtained, renders all of his cunning of no avail, and his death is often brought about by means of a very insignificant enemy. You've got to love them, really, haven't you? Uh, So I've tried to give a picture of the striped bass, of its physical characteristics and its character, bit of a bruiser, but impressive constitution, in my view, that it can live in salt and fresh water. I can't do that. That it is a multi-spawner and it can live to 30 years. In terms of looking at the sustainability and life chances of the striped bass, it has what I can only describe as a yo-yo timeline. And I'm going to start at the turn of the 20th century. 
I'm going to go into the striped bass timeline and I'm going to give a degree of detail about it. It's going to cover 120 years and it's going to take us right up to the present day. One, it's going to tell us about the fortunes of the striped bass and two, it's going to reflect the ecology of the Chesapeake Bay over this 120 years. The fortunes of the striped bass, they don't necessarily run in tandem, but they certainly are uh, reflecting how much this does yo-yo. And starting in the early 20th century, the striped bass at this point, they were revered as a game fish. They still are. And it was known for its vigorous fight on the hook. 1930s saw a steep decline in the striper population due to commercial fishing. And the 1940s to the 60s, the population of striped bass rises due to cooperation of the coastal states. The decade between the 1960s and the 70s was important. The bay was experiencing regular fish kills from toxic blooms and oxygen lows. But time ticked by as the scientists disagreed as to how sick the bay really was. But not to the concerned citizens and scientists who set up the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in 1967 with the mission to study the bay and find solutions. Fifty years later, it is a global exemplar of management of restoration and of degraded habitats. And I would add to that a dogged persistence respect. I'm going to twin with Miriam here because by 1965 the menhaden fish, the primary prey of the striped bass, were being caught primarily to be rendered down as animal feed, fish oil and for the growing aquaculture industry. This is known as reduction fishery. In 1965 the menhadens were pushed to the limits of sustainability. Industrial scale fishing using larger boats, larger nets Planes and helicopters to scout for the shoals proved deadly for the population. The 1980s, the striped bass population had reached an all-time low, so we've jumped forward 15 years there. In 1985, in response, Maryland ordered a complete ban on bass fishing, and in 1989, Virginia followed suit. This moratorium on striped bass fishing led to a remarkable comeback of the bass population, and the 1990s saw the ban lifted for recreational fishing as the numbers had increased encouragingly. But anglers started to report that they were catching diseased fish. Some of the striped bass had white fungus spots, some had red sores on their skins and lips, and this was coming from bacterial infection. Many were emaciated. Some fish looked fine from the outside, but cutting into them revealed unexpected horrors. One fishing charter captain, Jim White, described one such fish. Last year I cleaned a fish for a customer. After I filleted it, I went to throw it away. But I said, let's see what she's eaten. I cut the stomach open some more. The spleen fell out. It was the most ungodly thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Red, green, black, all kinds of sores. So the impressive recovery of the striper population goes into reverse 
and the scientists were at a loss as to what was causing this very visible malaise. The science community realised that this was not one specific disease, but a perfect storm of many factors. They realised that the striped bass were emaciated not from disease, but from the fact that they were starving. It made them very uh, vulnerable to bacterial infections. A normal healthy fish would be able to fight them off. So the welcome increase in their numbers had not been matched by an increase in their main food source, the Menhadens. The bay had lost its balance and functioning ecosystem and become a series of disjointed parts. At around this time in 1997, fish died in their thousands around the lower Pocomoke River. Anglers and state water workers who were exposed to the fish and the water developed health problems, rashes, memory loss, and it was traced back to an algal bloom, a microorganism known as Fisteria pisida, that blooms under high nutrient conditions and in certain circumstances secretes a corrosive poison that causes lesions on fish. It was dubbed the cell from hell. It could eat through the body wall of the fish, exposing their guts and killing them. It was not recommended that people should swim that summer in the Pocomoke area. We're at uh, 1997, roughly speaking, and uh, we moved to 2007 to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's State of the Bay Report. And they publish an annual report, and again, it's an exemplar of transparency. They grade themselves every year, and sometimes they report successes, and sometimes they have to report pushbacks. So in 2007, we're 10 years from the 1997, where we had the Pocomoke events, and we also had the striped bass emaciated and starving. And so their 2007 report is, the poor health of the resident fish suggests that habitat improvement has not kept up with the fishery conservation. The Chesapeake can no longer support the high numbers of striped bass it did until recently. Low body weight, increased disease and reduced survival have all been widely observed in Chesapeake striped bass. Research is ongoing, but scientists believe that low numbers of their favourite food, the menhaden, and poor water quality are likely causes of these problems. It must be so frustrating for organisations that are working so hard to restore, to recover. Gains are very small. Sometimes there are no gains. An update from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in 2020 indicates that the striped bass are in slow decline. Recreational catches have dropped steadily, especially at the edges of the range of the species, and this is a sure sign of decline in population. There's measures in place to reduce the allowable catch by up to 25%, closing the trophy striped bass season, limiting the recreational bag limit to one fish, and a reduction in the size of the nets used by commercial fishermen. However, the striped bass remain malnourished and vulnerable to mycobacteriosis, which is a bacteria that lives in the water and the sediment. It's a chronic wasting disease and affects 70% of the striped bass in the Bay Area. Again, it points back to the loss of the striped bass's primary prey, the menhaden, which, as Miriam said, has been overfished for 32 of the past 54 years. I want to give a little bit of um, structure to... Uh, the management of fisheries and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission manages the fisheries for the 15 states on the eastern seaboard and as such has the authority to set limits or caps on the yearly catches allowed by commercial fisheries. There is continual argument 
between the priorities for conservation and the muscle of the industrial fishing. The finger points unequivocally to the Omega Protein Corporation, which is the only remaining Menhaden reduction fishery based in Reedville. I'm going to give a little detail to give a picture of the size and power of a commercial interest in fishing. Omega Protein are a Canadian-owned company and their revenues for the year ending 2016 were $390.8 million US dollars. Their net income was $45.3 million US dollars. It said on an adjusted basis, which I don't understand, so there were there are two lots of figures. You could easily say that the net income was 40 million US dollars. There's been a four-year period of argument between Omega Protein and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, the state of Virginia, and the US Department of Commerce. Omega Protein fights for every last pound of Menhaden they can catch. And it goes something like this. Omega Protein are issued a license to fish for Menhaden from the state of Virginia. Virginia is the last remaining state to do so. In 2019, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission found Virginia to be out of compliance after Omega Protein declared that it had caught approximately 30% more Menhaden than allowed under the Chesapeake Bay Harvest Cap. The U.S. Department of Commerce upheld Atlantic State Marine Fishery Commission's non-compliance finding, noting that Menhaden's role as a food source for other species in the bay is critical. Just to give you some comparative numbers, if you've never looked at commercial fishing and the catch limits that they have to comply with. In 2012, which is also noted as the year of the lowest recording of Menhaden numbers ever, the catch limit set was a whopping 87,216 metric tonnes. 2020, we're eight years on, it has now set at 36,192 metric tonnes, which is less than half the 2012 limit. There's a few things, just a few facts about Omega Protein. It has a workforce of over 1,000 people. They're not all in Reedville. Omega Protein is actually a large company, it's tied with other companies, it's moving into aquaculture and it's moving into other products as well. They knowingly exceeded their 30% catch limit. They have been fined and pleaded guilty on more than one occasion to violations of the Clean Water Act 2016. They've had fines running to, the, to millions of dollars. There is scant environmental reporting on Omega Protein. They get more coverage from the financial press. Their mission statement is, healthy products for a healthy world. These products might be healthy, but Omega Protein know that they are bagging world resources and not investing anything back. I wonder if they think there's a magical flume of endless silvery menhaden. I'm going to end with a really lovely quote from the 2020 Chesapeake Bay Foundation annual report as it taps into our episode four, which is looking at what can we do for the environment. Here's the quote. So it is perhaps fitting that the 
biggest victories for management of this critical fishery came from grassroots efforts as humble and essential as the Menhaden itself. This year, after more than two decades of relentless work, Chesapeake Bay Foundation advocates and partners from across the conservation and angling community achieved critical safeguards for Menhaden. We know that this was 20 years of hard and at sometimes boring committee work, advocating for changes to the management of the Menhaden, working with partners, petitioning for change, supporting regulations. Bottom line, turning up and building this conversation. I've got breaking news again. So in The Guardian today, we've got an article, a global sustainable fishing initiative agreed by 14 countries. Came out this afternoon, the 2nd of December 2020. Now, I often read positive articles about uh, conservation, about government institution making pledges, government leaders coming together. But this does look as though it might have made a step change into something that is more powerful, certainly encouraging. So I'll read some of it. Governments responsible for 40% of the world's coastlines have pledged to end overfishing, restore dwindling fish populations, and stop the flow of plastic pollution into the sea for the next 10 years. It will mark the world's biggest ocean sustainability initiative. And the countries who are signing up to this, Australia, Canada, Chile, Fiji, Ghana, Indonesia, Jamaica, Japan, Kenya, Mexico, Namibia, Norway, Palau and Portugal will end harmful subsidies that contribute to overfishing. And this was a key demand of the campaigners. Each of the countries, uh, members of the High-Level Panel for Sustainable Ocean Economy, have also pledged to ensure that all the areas of ocean within its own national jurisdiction, known as exclusive economic zones, are managed sustainably by 2025. That is a very ambitious uh, statement. That's only five years from now. And that amounts to an area of ocean roughly the size of Africa. This is very cheering. Research has found that if oceans were sustainably managed... They could provide six times more food than today, when many species are fished up to and beyond their recovery limits. This has been known for a really long time, and it's one of the huge frustrations that the scientists out there, the people, the environmental correspondents, people like me, we know this to be the case. The lack of progress is so deeply frustrating. Economists also calculate that for every dollar invested in sustainable oceans, there is about $5 return in economic, social, environmental and health benefits. And that sustainably managing the world's oceans would create about 12 million new jobs. Uh, There's a quote from Jane Lubchenco, the administrator of the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration under President Obama. And what she says is... What you have now, i.e. what we have now, is a hodgepodge of ocean management. Sector by sector, it's not holistic. That does nothing to help recover the health of the underlying ecosystems. And we are seeing a loss of biodiversity, climate change running rampant. 
the oceans are in a very sorry state right now. This is quite a long paragraph, but literally it is ticking all the boxes if they can do this. This is where it's so ambitious. I'm going to read it relatively carefully because this is what people have been asking for, whether it will happen, but it's what people have been asking for. So their commitments, these 14 countries, also include a global target to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030, alongside setting up national plans by 25 that would ensure local sustainability, to use technology to improve the monitoring of fishing, to eliminate the discarding of ghost fishing gear, to invest in sewage and waste management infrastructure in developing countries, to place national targets on decarbonising shipping transport. That's a huge subject. And to scale up environmentally responsible forms of fish farming. Another huge subject. And the article goes on. Some of the work of restoring health to the oceans must also take place on land. In a report, the leaders set out the case for shifting to a circular economy that would prevent plastic pollution from reaching the sea and improving agricultural regulation on land to halt the spread of dead zones from fertiliser and manure runoff. Another tick. And I finish with a response from a spokesperson for the UK government said, The UK is at the forefront of the global fight to protect our marine habitats and is championing a global commitment to protect at least 30% of the global ocean by 2030. We will carefully consider the recommendations made by the high-level panel to ensure we continue to work globally to raise the bar for marine protection. I wonder where we've heard that kind of language before. Now, these are my sources for the Striped Bass story, Yo-Yo Timeline, the 2020 update, which includes catch limits and omega protein. So starting off, uh, a popular treatise upon game and food fishes of North America, 1887 by G.B. Goody. We've taken quite a few quotes from that. And as a correction, in my Striped Bass story, I said 1987, not 1887. Uh, There is an amazing site called archive.org and I could actually read a popular treatise upon game and food fishes online. It's wonderful. Uh, Other sources, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Callum Roberts, The Unnatural History of the Sea, The Guardian, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, And around the omega protein, there was a site called Seafood Source that had interesting information. And there was last10k.com for an article on profits and another one, Institutional Investor. So are we recording? We are recording. Good stuff. All right. (laughs) Well, I think uh, we've said quite a lot already in this episode, haven't we? Maybe we don't need to say very much else. (laughs) No, I think I think I think I'm in agreement with you there, Marine. This was 
a particularly uh, not dense, but um, so much content in this. I just hope we did the fish justice. I definitely lived with them for a while, and I I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we um, were here. We turned up. <laughs> we were talking about them. Yeah. What I hadn't realised is that within my own work, and it's what you were saying about the Menhaden. Sorry, what I didn't remember about my own work. <laughs> yeah. A lot of my work is. Uh, looks at what what might be called the disregarded and certainly an exhibition I had I've I've got an ongoing piece of work that looks at a totally disregarded clump of trees on a hill I just I've painted it over a hundred little tiny paintings and so the Menhaden literally fall into this category what you what you were saying about not being able to find them when you went on to google search or whatever Oh, yeah, it was the sub the subtitles on the video just didn't recognise it as a word, Ooh. like it didn't exist. And yet, if you go into the, the science of it, clearly it is a highly regarded fish, it's just that nobody knows about it. So if you're saying, have we done them justice? 100%. <laughs> and you and I have done more research than we've been able to, to discuss. I know, I've got pages and pages. <laughs> Yeah, I always have this when I research where I go, you know, you fall down the rabbit hole and you just realize that things are connected to things you hadn't thought about. And so then you go down that. The job is to know when to cut the story off and, and what needs to be told in this context. Yeah. And that, you know, that is hard, especially if you really care about stuff. And, and it's also, it's actually genuinely interesting. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, totally. As we're talking, I was just thinking the thing that stays with me the most about what you were saying about the striped bass. I don't know. Is it is it a false positive? Is that this? Is that maybe it's the wrong phrase? But basically, this notion that just because you have more of something doesn't mean that it's going well. Just because the numbers are going up, basically that you have something that on the surface looks beautiful yeah. or yeah. looks yeah. like it's recovering or yeah. looks plentiful. But then the moment you start looking into that, yeah. you realise what it used to be or that actually just because there's more of the bass doesn't mean that they're healthy or doesn't mean that the ecosystem is recovering or it feels like that's the kind of point that we keep coming back to. We do, and I think the... Describing it as a false positive is a really, it's a very good way of, of, of picturing it. And, but what it comes round to also is what you were talking about in, in more detail and what I've learned more about with the Atlantic States, Atlantic States Fisheries Commission. Commission. They're now going to be looking at Chesapeake Bay. Uh, holistically as an ecosystem as an yeah. ecosystem and it's literally this is groundbreaking it's just it, within yeah. this sort of like the this time span of our podcast here these things are changing in front of us mm. very good news well I had more to say than I thought <laughs> always the way yeah I know no. <laughs> we're going to end this episode differently from the previous ones if we introduce what's to come in episode four our final episode if we do that now yes. before the final bit okay we're going to have a look at what 
people do in relation to contributing to the to the, the question, the conversation about the environment? And we've got three um, really, really lovely uh, guests, and they've all done something different, something very individual, and they've had an idea, and they've pushed through with it. So when yeah. we say, what can we do for the environment, there's not going to be a prescription. These three guests have all done something quite different because they thought, oh, I can do this. I'm, I'm just going to do it. They're not activists. They're not, they're not writing about it. It's just, I've got an idea and I can do this. For want of a better word, it's, it's very much a can-do. I'm kind of hoping it's going to, to encourage people to think, if you want to do something, you know, do something. You can be creative, you can have an idea, and you can push through with it. The, the three guests are just delightful. And I'm really excited. Yeah, bottom line is, and I know I've, I've said this before, but speaking to the listeners, turning up, listening to this podcast, not because we are the the soothsayers or the uh, uh, yeah the experts or whatever anything like that we're not but turning up investing in for instance this podcast you are doing something for the environment because you're considering it you're thinking about it and then there's this lovely expression about building the conversation and it might be you build the conversation with with your children with your parents with somebody on the street with your work colleagues to be honest that's a really strong thing to do for the environment. Yes. Invest, build, turn up. Well said, Judith. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to leave you with a dedication that Judith recorded that I'm really excited to share with you. It's a dedication to all scientists and to the fish that we have chosen as our examples. But there are thousands and we will finish with that and then we will take a little break over christmas and we will see you for a fresh start on the first of january for our final episode 2021 just wanted to expand upon what triggered these podcasts and I can pinpoint it exactly to the moment that I read these words. Striped bass were emaciated not because of disease, but because they were starving. I remember feeling like I'd been struck by a physical blow. What a defining symbol that the natural world was out of balance. In one sentence, it was clear that this was a grotesque failure. There were too many settlers encroaching on the bay there was too much over-exploitation of the natural resources, the oysters, the menhaden, the striped bass. Too much effluence. Too much lazy thinking that the bay could absorb this level of extraction and still be a poster image for the area. So where do you draw the line? This is it. So no more magical thinking. No, it's hard, painful thinking. It's talking, it's advocating, it's reducing, it's listening, it's changing. It would be presumptuous of me to imagine how the scientist Callum Roberts feels as he researches and records the parlous state of the oceans and the waterways of the world, or for any scientist for that matter. They are human, and I shall assume that they privately weep for what they find. Miriam and I would like to dedicate these four podcasts to the science community. 
Their research is the basis for future policy and planning. There is no certainty for the Earth's future. There is only the knowledge that each piece of research builds a stronger argument for planning and change. They carry the heavy burden of chronicling the natural world in its most precarious moment in history. To finish, I'm going to make a small square of time. I will set some intentions for the Menhaden and the striped bass. I'll start here. Sitting by the water's edge, I'm holding the prey and the predator in my lap, between my cupped hands. They are alive and will be released within these few minutes. I speak to them as a representative of humankind from the past, the present and the future. I acknowledge that they have a right as a species to inhabit this earth, to live by their natural behaviours, to be given the chance of old age. I apologise to them for our reckless and thoughtless behaviours that expected them to survive in a barren habitat. I pledge that I and others will protect their continuing existence on this earth. I thank them for taking this role as portent. I slip them back into the sea. I step out of the square and back onto the beach. <laughs>